0: We want to welcome you to the Arrow Heights Podcast, broadcasting live from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. My name is Ryan Smith.
1: My name is Nathan Copeland. And I'm Josh White. Hey, we made it through. <laughs> we made it. This is, this is take two. <laughs> take two, because I got caught on a frog in my throat or something. I don't know. It was weird. But mm. hey, it's all good. Since all we're
0: good. pros, we'll pretend. First try.
1: That's right. Don't ever refer to the uh, the bloopers. Is that what we're... St- yeah. yeah.
2: We good to have a blooper these. reel.
1: We didn't have anything to banter about today, so we can banter about that. First try, every try. That's right. That's right. So
2: Well, we've been bantering for like 15 minutes here about books. I don't know if we want to, that's true, rehash all
1: that. Nah, no reason. People, you should read books. That's right. Books, fiction, nonfiction, historical, historical fiction, all the books. It's a good question.
2: We should take up some time. Not today. Not today, obviously. How, is it just different for every person you know every Christian what percentage of your reading time should be the Bible uh reading real hard copy books versus audio books I mean are there guidelines there is there just is it just a matter of
1: wisdom I feel like we've talked about that mm. I feel like like just a little bit mm. But yeah we probably have that's yeah, all right there's
2: a, a
0: a couple in our church family that uh, I really enjoy talking to because they're very uh, literary minded and she'll come up sometimes and you know what books are you reading and there's usually five different genres that uh, she kind of encourages to read all all at the same time and you usually I'm doing pretty well but the, but the one the one that I just cannot and I recognize this as a self deficiency I can't read poetry, hmm. love music, love lyrics, love all the you know, I don't think it's that I'm just stone, but I, I don't get anything out of poetry. But you read the Bible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Biblical poetry doesn't count. B- Biblical poetry. Is, but it, it's, it's deeper <laughs> than just the poetry itself, you know, like, <laughs> I, I get it. I, I'm not a poetry guy either.
0: D- so. Have you ever read poetry and you're just like, oh, wow, that was really something.
1: No.
2: A little bit. It is It is a different thing, you know. Yeah. I was just reading a biography of C.S. Lewis. Sorry, <laughs> I apologize. We <coughs> <You> went there. <laughs> but he, he talks about how there's something about the way it sounds. And, mm-hmm. and this guy's describing how Lewis learned how to read uh, Greek poetry. And they didn't really talk about grammar or anything. They just started reading it. And there's something about the way it sounds in in Homer or someone like that. That captivates the ear, and then captivates the heart, and captivates the mind, in kind of an interesting way. So, well, we just one suggestion: of reading poetry,
1: just read it out loud. Hmm.
0: Hmm.
2: I'll, uh, I, I'll be
0: really honest. I don't know that I'm going to try that, but okay. I,
1: it's your homework for this week. Sh- that, yeah, <laughs> the people want to know.
0: Uh, I'll, uh,
1: <laughs> they'll ask next week. We're going to have a revisit. If
0: someone wants to bring me a book of poetry hmm. this week, I'll, I'll read portions of it on the uh, podcast next week.
1: Okay. Sounds All right. good. We'll uh, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, uh, but it has to be good. It has to, be good. To it has to be good. You're read it
0: on the podcast? <laughs> I will read it on the podcast. Oh, portions of it. Oh, not, okay. not the whole thing. All right. And just, we'll, we'll see if this, if this happens. I don't, the, the, the only, the only poetry that I've ever really enjoyed, uh, was Shel Silverstein, hmm. uh, a, a Light in the Attic. Was hmm. that it? Or, uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends. I I can a tree
2: sti- grows in Brooklyn, like <laughs> <laughs> Green <laughs> Eggs and Ham. What
0: is it? I can still remember some of the the poems that I read like as a as a kid. Wow! From Shel Silverstein.
2: I think you're a poet and you just don't know it. Uh, but, this maybe guy, that's it. This guy. I could be wrong. I think that David Derler actually taught a class at this church years ago on Christian poetry. Yeah, wow. I think you're right. And and I don't know how many people were involved in it. I don't know. Probably two. David and maybe me, I don't remember. But anyway, the point is, there There are books, there are anthologies. There's a, there's one called The Soul in Paraphrase, mm. but that Leland Ryken, you know, who was involved mm-hmm. in the ESV translation, uh, that he put together. Uh, another one called A Sacrifice of Praise, which is just classic Christian poems. Mm. So there, I, I'll bring you one. Okay. No one has to worry about it. I got you. I appreciate poetry. I just, I
0: don't, I don't know, it, it doesn't, uh, see, I can't come up with words And that's probably why Because I don't read enough poetry <laughs> it, I no understand uh, words <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh Well, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to that, yeah, uh, that Enlightening segment that we'll <laughs> add next week And we may just make it a staple Like once a that's month right. Poetry sit-downs with Ryan <laughs> <laughs> Poetry Corner Ryan's Poetry Corner Welcome to Masterpiece Theatre Okay, anyways, let's uh, let's roll on to some questions Because we got a good chunk of questions Chunk, chunk Anyways, yep. uh, hey, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, first question that we're going to jump into comes from a, a cross training kid. Uh, I don't know if that's youth kid. This could be an old person saying, "Old person, I'm such a jerk." Uh, an older a, a student, a student. It could be a student. It could be uh, one of our kids. Uh, but this question comes from a kid in cross training. Says, "I had a question from one of my kids in cross training this last Wednesday, which would have been a week and a half ago. Uh, how do we know the Bible is real?" Wow, How do we know? That's a pretty big question.
2: That is a great question. One that I'm so glad uh, young people are asking. And I think there are probably lots of ways to answer that question. How how do they know the Bible is real? Is that the way they put it? Mm -hmm. Uh, I assume that what they mean by real is is true, like uh, reliable. I mean, obviously, the Bible's real. We've got one right here. You know, the Bible exists, but is it true? Is it reliable? Can we can we trust it? Can we trust that what it tells us is is true? And I think uh, there's, like I said, there's lots of ways. In fact, that might be just advice I might have for um, this small group leader or even a parent is to answer the question in different ways, and then maybe follow up with, you know, did this you know argument kind of make sense, or or you know, is there something you're struggling with, something like that. But one one way to answer the question is we know the Bible is true and reliable because the Bible says so. If God says something, then obviously it's true, and, and if the Bible is God's word, then we can we can rely on it because God is reliable, right? And I think that's important to say because honestly, like when we read the Bible, we read over and over and over again that God speaks, that God uh, tells us who He is. That you know the, the prophets again and again say thus you know, says the Lord. God spoke the world into existence, right? Our God is a God who speaks, and He speaks in ways that we can understand, and that that means so much. That's so important, because uh, it's not just that God exists, and He's up there somewhere. He speaks to us, so we can know Him. Uh, we can we can know who He is, and what He's like, and what He has done, and we can know His promises, what He will do. And that's, that's just so important, because, uh, again, uh, God wants us to to know Him, um, and He speaks to us in ways that we can that we can understand. And another way I think is to just point to Jesus. Uh, if Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if He is the Risen Son of God, then anything Jesus says, anything Jesus uh, thinks, wh- whatever He thinks about the Bible, that's of course how we should think about the Bible, right? So there's lots of of different ways to kind of go at that question, but one one is just to say Jesus never doubted God's word. Uh, you can see all of his disagreements with, say, the the scribes and the Pharisees, and they disagreed on lots of things, but they did not disagree on God's word that it is true. It doesn't have any errors in it. It doesn't lead us astray. They disagreed on what the Bible meant and exactly how to read it, but they they both. You know, Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, they agreed that this is God's Word. Uh, so that's very informative for us, because whatever Jesus, uh, however he he understood the Bible, however he read the Bible, that's how we should understand the Bible. That's how we should view the Bible, right? So that's that's important to say. And again, there's just lots of other ways to go at that question, whether it be uh, people that we know and trust believe the Bible. That's that's valid. We, we trust all kinds of things. On the authority of others, uh, all the time. So that's that's a valid thing. You know, your parents, your grandparents, your Sunday school teachers. You know, your uh, pastors, whatever. Those people, if they are reliable people, you can take their word for it. That they've been around maybe longer than you have. They might have some insight or some knowledge that you don't. Uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit uh, confirms for us that this is God's word because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and causes us to to cry out to God our Father and to trust what He says. Um, you think about all the fulfilled prophecies. That's another way. You think about just the miracles that are in the Bible. You can go on and on. There are lots of different ways to to sort of, uh, sort of confirm that that God's Word is true and reliable. Uh, so again, I just think it's so important that um, all of these different kind of uh, ways of answering the question are explored and, and just sort of work through those things uh, Because really, this is the most important question you could answer, uh, right? It it really is a matter of life and death. Do you believe God's Word? Mm -hmm. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. Faith in God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. So this is such an important question, uh, and one that definitely requires our attention. Yeah,
0: Yeah, there are also some internal evidences that the Bible is true, certainly, the very fact that the Bible is what it is, and that it's not just a book that someone wrote uh, I've, out of, oh, I've, I've had a revelation, you know, that God told me this, so you all should believe it. The Bible is a book written by 40 different authors uh, over the span of approximately 2,000 years. You have people writing it such as Kings, like King David, from, from a king to, to fishermen, to all around, with uh, poetry, you know, his, you history, <laughs> uh, let, just letters. Someone once said, and I thought this was very helpful to me, he said, the Bible is not a book that man would write if they could write. It's not also not one that they could write if they would write. And so that that second part is not one they could write if they would because it is a collection of these 66 different books from 40 different authors over 2000 years yet it tells one cohesive story. Right. And that story is told through prophecies mm-hmm. that are then shown how they became true in the world later. So if someone wanted to write the Bible just to make up a religion, they couldn't do what we have in our in our hands it'd be impossible. At the same time, every other religious text uh, is either a set of you know do's and don'ts, mm-hmm. or something that makes mankind look like the hero. Uh, we want to put ourselves at the center of the story. What the Bible tells us is that mankind is not at the center of the story. We are peripheral, and if anything, we uh, are the antagonists in, in, in some ways. Uh, we fail and fail again, time and time again. And So there's not any aspect of man being good enough. If anything, it's kind of humiliating for mankind but it does point us to a great and factual savior as as you said generations as the book of hebrews says you know, this great cloud of witnesses has testified over and over yes i based my life on this book and it is true you can too so there are all sorts of textual reasons uh, the the vast number of old manuscripts that we have far outnumber any other literary work from history uh, there, uh, and, and the consistency, that's one thing. The Bible continues to show itself true through archaeology. Uh, you know, there's so many, I'm sure there are countless numbers of people who say, oh, well, the Bible's not true because it says this city exists and it doesn't exist. Come 50 years later, oh, we just found this city,
2: right. exactly
0: mm-hmm. where the Bible said it was. Uh, so the Bible continues to show itself true uh, through, through science, through archaeology, uh, through um, – just philosophy, and and just bear, and it bears witness to it's, itself in our own lives. So it's a it's a re- remarkable remarkable book.
1: Yeah, and it, I think it's encouraging to know that it's just stood the test of time. You know, I mean, how many people have asked this question over the course of the last two thousand, you know, years, uh, and and it's been vetted time and time again uh, up against as many people that are coming against it. It's the most widely available book on the planet. Uh, it's pretty cool. So, yeah.
2: It was something, I can't remember what the details were, but this has happened to me again and again, just over the many years of reading the Bible. There was some question I had, and as I gave it a little more thought, and as I kind of meditated on it, and as I maybe picked up a study Bible or something, I, I gained some insight, and I thought to myself, wow, it's amazing that even this little detail fits. It doesn't, it doesn't contradict, whenever you understand what it's doing here, and I can't remember the exact uh, details of this. This was maybe a couple of weeks ago. I was driving home thinking about it, going, man, that's amazing. Once again, the Bible sort of confirms uh, in, in my heart that it really is what it claims to be, which is uh, the trustworthy word of our trustworthy God. Mm-hmm. Amen. He cannot lie.
1: Amen. It's a good deal. Um, Okay. Next question. Uh, When Christ said, and this is a doozy, so hold on. Uh, When Christ said, and Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Mark 14, verse 62 that we preached, uh, Ryan preached yesterday. Uh, You said, you... You, there's mm. a finger point in that direction. Mm. I, can, I can feel it. Mm-hmm. You said.
0: From one finger points, three more point right back at you.
1: Three more.
0: I learned that from a cartoon.
1: You point your thumb at the same time, you're, which that's not a finger. Anyways, yeah. uh, you said. One point's down. One <laughs> point's down. I guess it depends on. Wow. We are distracted. Uh, anyways, back to the question. Mark 14, 62, uh, says you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, Ryan, you said that, uh, this speaks as his second coming. Uh, but he says you will see, uh, in quotes, uh, and, and the texter says, I would see this as his coming in judgment against Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Josephus himself spoke of witnesses saying that they saw this act or this, this occurrence during the destruction of the temple. Thus, Jesus prophesied this, and it came to pass, proving even more that he is God. What are your thoughts on this? Um,
0: to me, this kind of goes back to a discussion that we had previously about type and archetype. Whereas one thing means something, and it certainly means that thing in historic uh, history, uh, for lack of a better term, but it also points forward to another thing, and as it points forward, it can point forward to multiple things. Uh, what I would say the first place to go with that. Text is to Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen, which talks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds, and so it's and going before the Ancient of Days, and that was the very uh, kind of foundational passage on the Christ. They would have understood that uh, as as a very Christological passage. So when when Jesus is saying I'm the Son of Man coming with the clouds, he is claiming Daniel seven is about him. I think there's no mistake that in the Revelation passage uh, that, that I quoted, it also uses the phrases, coming with the clouds.
2: Do you remember what passage that is?
0: I want to say it was Revelation 1.7. Let me look that up real quick. Yes, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him.
2: All the tribes of the
0: earth. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, so that's a very Christological second-coming uh, summary statement. Now, there are people that argue that, that Josephus recorded that around the time when the temple was destroyed that some people saw in the clouds uh, an activity of, of an army or or, or something like that, uh, you know, m- maybe. I don't think that's the final uh, judgment that he's talking about. Uh, now, that very well may have been an act that signified the judgment, but I think when you look at Revelation and the second coming, because of the similarities with so much of Old Testament prophecy with Daniel and Ezekiel uh, and, and some other passages, it's, it's difficult to argue that that revelation is not a consummation of these <clears throat> apocalyptic prophecies and that Jesus was also taking these apocalyptic prophecies and applying them to himself and the future so um maybe partially mm. d- done at that time from what josephus records but uh in com- in comparing Josephus' comment versus the entire book of Revelation. I'm thinking that it leans more towards the book of Revelation. Hmm.
2: That's really good. Yeah, this is one of those questions that I sort of have questions about. Right. Um, sorry to be that that way. I guess, but the, the question is phrased right. The questioner says he he or she I guess interprets uh, this phrase "you will see" as a reference to Jesus' coming in judgment against Jerusalem. In AD 70. In other words, you Jewish leaders, you will see this happen in AD 70. And my question kind of gets to there, there's a there's a doctrine, right? There's a there's a theological position called preterism. Preterism just means before-ism, right? So uh, everything sort of happens, uh, uh, it all happened before now, it all happened back in AD seventy. If you're a preterist interpreter of the Bible, that is a kind of a theological, eschatological position, you see almost all the prophecies of coming judgment in the New Testament as referring to AD 70. Uh, That may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners, because typically we think of the the prophecies of coming judgment as those that are uh, still to come at the second coming of Christ— um, not they've already happened, right in AD seventy. So that, that's kind of where I'd want to talk to this questioner about this this phrase um, coming. That, that's what the, the, he says. I would see this as his coming in judgment. At least you have to be careful about that phrase Christ's coming. Excuse me, Christ's coming or Christ's second coming, because I don't think that AD seventy is. Uh, a coming of Christ in judgment. Uh, I think it's better to probably think of that as as Israel seventy
0: being when the temple was destroyed. When the temple
2: was destroyed, yeah. That's sort. I mean, Christ did prophesy that you know there is judgment coming on these Jewish leaders and and their uh, self righteousness, their way of using the law of God to their own advantage, uh, and sort of puffing themselves up in pride and self righteousness. Yeah, Israel's desolation was complete at 8070, at the destruction of the temple, and it was torn down. But 8070 is not the second coming. I I would even say it's kind of weird to say it is a coming of Christ, because that word coming, the parousia, right, of Christ, that is a global event. Mm -hmm. Like you pointed to in Revelation 1, I think also of Revelation chapter 6, where it says, the kings of the earth. And the great ones and the generals and the rich and everyone, slave and free, are going to cower in fear and, and call upon the rocks to, to, to fall down on them, to shield them from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the second coming of Christ in judgment. And it's not just kind of a, a specific localized judgment in Jerusalem. It is a worldwide, global judgment. So that's it's just kind of strange to think. To, to speak of it that way, but also agree with you uh, when he says you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. I think there is sort of an already, not yet uh, type, archetype uh, dimension to what's going on there. Already Jesus has pronounced judgment on their efforts at legalism and their greed and their power, but not yet have they seen the full judgment that is coming uh, when he returns uh, on the clouds of heaven. Uh, when he comes again, judgment will come, not just on them, but on the living and the dead. Mm. So, yeah, I just, to me, the question is a little bit confused. But if it's coming from that preterist position specifically, I go, okay, I see where you're coming from. I don't agree with that. That's not the that's not the way I understand those passages. But yeah, I would want to ask more questions to kind of flesh that out.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think there's maybe a parallel here with thinking about the temple. And the holy of the holies, and when uh, Jesus speaks of uh, being being with us and our, our access mm-hmm. to the Father, uh, the Scripture says, you know, when Jesus died, the the temple curtain was torn in two. Uh, so there was a way in which mankind was now no longer separated from the holy of holies in the temple of God. That actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Jesus is talking about those things, he's talking about much more than that. Mm -hmm. That was almost a a symbolic, though real, way of talking about what we have, in a way, in access to Christ now, but what we will fully have uh, for eternity when we are with Jesus before the throne forever. So, uh, yes, both of those... we do look forward to that final event. There was a physical event that happened that also could be interpreted with those same words, but it was more of a foreshadowing of a greater reality. So I think that's probably if, if Josephus's words are to, are to be uh, taken as, as true, my guess would be that that is what is is going on.
1: Yeah. Right on. Okay. Cool. Uh, next question. Uh, I was reading, Uh, Romans, this is the texter speaking, you know, I've got to clarify. Uh, I was reading in Romans 2, verse 14 in the New King James Version, and we'll read that in just a second. Um, I'll actually read a bigger section than that. But it says, I'm confused. Does this verse mean that if you have never heard of Jesus or the law, Uh, for example, hidden tribe in the jungle, can you uh, still go to heaven if you instinctively follow the law? I know our salvation revolves around our repentance and Jesus dying for our sins, but what does that mean for unreached tribes? Uh, Let me read uh, Romans 2. I'm going to read 12 through 16. It says, for as many have sinned without the law, and this is in in the NKJV, just since they referenced that and figured... For cohesiveness, um, verse twelve says: For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who will show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So the the core being that verse 14, For when Gentiles do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Um. And the, the question, again, is um, uh, can you still go to heaven if you instinctively follow the law tying into mm-hmm. tribes who may have not ever heard the name of Christ? Yeah. And Romans is such a good book, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. There's so
2: much there, and Paul is so specific, and he's laying out this argument sort of step by step, and it's, it's helpful, I think. Uh, by the way, this is totally an aside, but I was talking to Rich the other day, he had gone to this missions conference, and we were talking about different things that happened there. But I was talking to him about this guy, David Platt, who one day was preaching at Southern Seminary. And Platt was saying, you know, when we go to the nations, we we take this message. We're just ambassadors. We don't make up our own message. We have to take the message. And he said a great place to begin really learning the gospel is in the book of Romans. And he says this is such a, a clear message. And I mean, it's it's detailed. I mean, you can kind of get lost a little bit in in the in the trees if you're not careful. But it's such a clear and powerful statement of the gospel that you know, as it says there in Romans one sixteen. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first, right, and also to the Gentile for all who believe, right. And so he begins quoting from Romans one sixteen, I think, and he starts quoting and he quotes all the way through chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Just mm. by memory, you know <laughs> it was a very powerful sermon. you know most of it was just him reading or again quoting from memory Romans 116 all the way through chapter 8. but it's helpful to have some context here. Romans 1 really lays out the case that the Gentiles who do not know God are um, under his condemnation because they they do know God actually <laughs> and they suppress that truth. They want to claim they don't know God, they want to say, you know, this, that, the other, but at the end of the day, God's uh, invisible nature has been revealed clearly in what he has made, and people know this, and yet they still reject it, they they suppress it in their unrighteousness, and so his condemnation of them is just, because they do not live according to the revelation they have right in front of them. And then verse, uh, sorry, chapter 2, basically says the same thing about the Jews, that they have the law, and yet uh, you know, they, they don't live according to it. They're, at the end of the day, no different than these Gentiles who continue to uh, reject and rebel against God's law. And this is where it kind of comes into Romans 2.14. Basically, Gentiles, Paul is saying, possess God's law in such a way that there's not that much difference between Jew and Gentile. They're, they're following some of the standards of God's law just kind of by nature. And so they re, they, they reveal that they have this law sort of unto themselves. They have this understanding uh, of, of God's character and his standards by the fact that sometimes they conform to it. They have the conscience that God has given them. They have the light of nature. Uh, but again, this is not... Um, uh, saving knowledge right this revelation that they have and this knowledge of God that they have is enough to uh, render them guilty yeah and and responsible before God but it's not enough to save them only through the specific word of the gospel right faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ paul's going to say or as he just says in 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 Romans chapter 3 he gets to the end of this and says everybody's guilty in in verses 9 through like 20 of chapter 3. Then he says, but here's the good news. The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Mm -hmm. And he talks about Christ, the propitiation for our sins, because none of us live up to that standard. So I think it's a great question, and the answer is no. People cannot be saved just by the light that they have. No, we're only saved by trusting Christ, by trusting his perfect sacrifice for us. What Paul is doing here is showing that's the case whether you're Jew or Gentile. None of us are going to be able to claim our own righteousness, our own obedience to the law that we have, whether it be written in the Bible or written on our hearts. None of us is going to be able to claim righteousness before God uh, based on our own efforts at obedience.
1: Yeah, I think it's. <clears throat> sorry, uh, it's uh, in, in a sense, it's it's not a saving knowledge. It's it's a condemnation, heaping condemnation on yourself because you have the knowledge that you need uh, to pursue Christ and the gospel. You have that general revelation that that ca- should cause you to push into uh, and seek um, that that specific knowledge. But but in, in just like what Romans one says, it's a it is a uh, it is a you're reaping your just reward for. The, the ignorance <laughs> in a sense um and so you know you talk about unreached tribes I mean that that's as hard as a conversation as that is uh, without the knowledge of Christ uh, being revealed to them specifically they they're lost yeah. uh, and I think I think of Romans 10 you know how how will they hear unless someone preaches you know beautiful are the feet of those feet of those who who bring good news mm-hmm. i mean it's it's really on us uh, mm-hmm. to a degree to follow in obedience to to share the gospel with those that need it it's why uh, unreached people groups is such a big deal right now uh, for the IMB and, and mission organizations because uh, they know that people are lost and dying without um, knowing what Christ has done for them.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely, I agree with. But uh, both of you said, you know, Romans two fourteen. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. the The juxtaposition there is as, as you said between jew and gentile but what this shows us is even if you have the law written out dictated to you from god himself you still can't follow it mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the whole thing of uh, the early chapters of romans is we're all dead mm-hmm. whether we've been given the advantage of the law or without the advantage of the law. Either way, we're dead in our sin, and we live that out no matter where we are from, no matter what understanding or background we we come from. But as you said in Romans 1, we are without excuse because God has not hidden himself. Uh, he has overwhelmingly Displayed who he is, uh, that we might reach out and that we might seek him, and when we seek him, that he will be found by us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, good, good question. But definitely in the full context of Romans, uh, do we better understand uh, what what Paul's saying there?
1: Amen. Yeah. All right. Uh, last one. Uh, insight from the sermon uh, is what this person texts. Reading Mark 14.53 reminded me of the passage in Hebrews. Uh, here in the gospel, Jesus is led away to the high priest. Hebrews 5 talks about Jesus being the high priest, the perfect and greater high priest. So the question is, Hebrews 5, four. what does it mean according to the order of Melchizedek? According to the order of Melchizedek. And I didn't pull that up to read it, but That might be helpful hold on just a second i think i have it here um
2: every high priest this is uh hebrews 5 starting in verse 1 every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to god to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ, this is verse 5, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek.
1: Yeah. Melchizedek.
2: Melchizedek. That, that phrase that they're asking about comes... Uh, it's a quote from the Old Testament in verse 6, and then uh, it appears again down there in verse 10. Where is it a quote from? Yeah, Psalm, Psalm
0: one ten four. Yeah. Psalm one ten four. Yeah, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, uh, coming from two words, Melech and Zedek, I believe, uh, in the Hebrew, meaning, meaning king of righteousness. Um we see Melchizedek first in Genesis 14, 18, which is Melchizedek, king of Salem, where believed you know, this, is Jerusa, Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, brought out bread and wine in uh, Genesis 14, 18, and says, parentheses, he was priest of God most high. Now, there are a lot of questions about Melchizedek, a yeah. lot of <laughs> Where yeah. did he come from? What did, but I think what is, um, what is important here is, is that this is in Genesis 14 not Exodus Leviticus so this is this is before the priestly system is in place, whereas uh, Moses' brother Aaron became the first high priest and his uh, sons after and his progeny served as priests in the temple. And the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is the true and better or supersedes these kind of uh, Mm -hmm. Mm already-not-yet-archetypes from the Old Testament. So the fact that Melchizedek is called a priest of God Most High before the priestly system has actually been instituted, mm-hmm. shows that he's not just a priest by bloodline or by law, but he is a priest as given the designation by God. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what the order of Melchizedek is. I think it's as opposed to the order of Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, it's not something he's born into, it's not an act that he does, it's a designation that he has uh, from God, even apart from uh, the Old Testament law.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I could imagine like a Jew in the New Testament times kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, they're saying Jesus is the great high priest, but isn't Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah? And, and the priest came from the tribe of Levi they were Le- levitical priests. So what's up with that? And here the book of Hebrews is offering this this essentially a sermon <laughs> all about Christ um, and saying, well, there's there's actually a priest that comes before mm-hmm. the levitical priests. You remember Melchizedek? People go, "Oh, maybe." And he go- he is a shadowy figure. You know, where does he come from? Right? He doesn't have any kind of beginning of days. Well, this is this is Jesus. He's actually a priest after this order. In other words, he's an eternal high priest. Uh, he's he's a priest that that goes beyond even these Levitical priests. He fulfills the Levitical priests, but in a greater way. There's kind of an escalation here. So yeah, he uses this figure from from uh, earlier in Genesis, and you kind of go, man, that's that's really something. But yeah, he's a type of Christ. He's a precursor priest, right? Who really points to uh, the true priest and what what Christ uh, accomplished. That again goes far beyond what any Levitical priest ever
1: did. And so, very thankfully, he did because without it, we'd be lost, right? Amen, brother. Mm-hmm. So, cool. Amen. Any other thoughts before we close her down? Sweet, really good questions. Yeah, av- really appreciate excellent it. Yeah. questions this week. If you've got more questions, you can text the number 918-280-9628. We hope you come back next week for uh, Ryan's homework. Uh, bringing right. some poetry Wednesday Ryan's night poetry at cross quarter. training, <laughs> Ryan's poetry corner. We'll we'll have some You know what? We might have a pad or two that uh, that gives us some good classical birds music. birds chirping and classical music <laughs> in the background. Uh, we might just have to make that happen. So Roaring fire. Put it on my list. So, look forward to that next wear Monday. Wear your
2: sweater fest. It'll be yes! great.
1: Yes! Ah, yeah, or your cardigan. <laughs> I will cardigan. Dude, this is going to happen. We might need to video this one. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, thanks for listening. If you got more questions, don't hesitate to text those in, and we will talk to you next time on the Euro Heights Podcast.